Father, the, the sacrifice that Your Son made is truly incomprehensible. And Lord, it extends to us to this day, to those of us in this room. Lord, to those in faraway places who have been called of You to serve You. Lord, we glory in this thought that our sin, not in part, but the whole, the whole of it, all of it, things before and things after salvation, we are so deeply grateful, Father. We thank You. It's all nailed to the cross. In His name we pray. Amen. Please, please be seated. So, um, Barbara and I got married in 1976, and it wasn't long after. Actually, it was uh, we got married in August, so by September we were at Emmaus Bible School when it was in Oak Park, Illinois. Some of you may remember that. And while we were there, we were delighted to learn that there was another couple there from Alaska. And so they were actually finishing up their uh, three years. They had somehow compressed the three into two, but they were, they were getting it uh, done. Uh, a man named Duke and his wife, Linda, they, were, they had been saved out of witchcraft. He had been a warlock. She had been a witch. And uh, they told us some extraordinary stories of Christ's redeeming power in their life. One story in particular, was, uh, was very compelling. After trusting Christ, they determined that the books and the artifacts and the trinkets and symbols and so forth in their house uh, needed to be destroyed. And so they built a bonfire and they burned everything in it. And as they burned the last item, they felt a freedom that they had not uh, felt in uh, a very long time. And yet later that night they awoke and they began to become distressed and disturbed. They felt a spiritual presence uh, in, their, in their home. And so they turned on all the lights and they began to search. And as they, as they searched, they knew that they had forgotten something. And so finally in the, in the seam, uh, in the underneath the, one of the cushions in the couch, they found a, a thin little book of spells. And so they burned it. And their house was cleansed. They could finally rest. And they replaced their books with the Bible, and Christian books and symbols. Now one day, they came over to, to our home and we were enjoying some wonderful fellowship with them until he noticed on my bookshelf... Anton LaVey's The Satanic Bible. You may ask, what in the world was I having that on my bookshelf for? Well, I was studying angelology and specifically demonology. And I wanted to know what the principalities and the powers and those things that we hear abstractly about in the Bible meant in 20th century Chicago. I needed to know what they, what they believed. Simple book, really, of just a philosophy on atheistic hedonism. What else would I have expected? Now, to me, my faith, while young, I had only been saved, I guess, about uh, 
three years at that point, as it related to differing philosophies or ideas or worldviews, I didn't have any problem at all. In fact, as Barb will tell you, uh, I would invite people in for a good fight. Uh, enjoyed it, in fact. And books were and are to me simply paper and ink. And the ideas and concepts and notions contained in them are simply something that my critical analysis of it will overcome because I am one who happens to believe that God has no peer, no near peer, no equal in category, class, or person. So why am I worried about it? I'm not. However, to Duke, that book wasn't ink, and that book wasn't a paper and ideas. It was a living, malignant portal to satanic influence, and more than that, even to the demons. So consequently, he insisted that I remove it, destroy it, get it out of the house or they would leave and not come back. Well, I disposed of the book. It's not a big deal for me. It's just a book. So I was out $3.75. Who cares? Our relationship with them was nothing to be compared uh, to a, a book. And we remain lifelong uh, friends. Sadly, both of their lives were ultimately cut short. But the point that I'm drawing here is that former associations, former beliefs, and former practices have present effect. They impact you now where you live and and move and have your being. And, And we're aware of some of those things and other of those things we're not aware of at all. And if you have an awareness you have the understanding that, the, that these things are personal and they are internal. They're something that you wrestle with as an individual. And yet, if you have a lack of awareness, those things, they don't bring internal understanding. What they bring is judgment. Judgment on others and judgment on self. Our past informs our present. You cannot get away from it. It, And sometimes it's problematic. Sometimes it's good. Turn with me to Romans 14, verses 13 through 16. That's on page 949 in the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 16, where we'll see how it is that love overcomes these types of things. In the Bible there, in Romans 14, 13 through 16, we read, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
Now, we need to backtrack just a, a, a bit here to see this passage in context. All the way back to chapter 14 and, and verse 1, where it says this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. This is very important because this is the guiding verse for the entire section that Paul is into. So that when we see someone who is weak, we're talking about someone who is weak in faith. And when we see someone is strong, uh, strong in faith. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the threads on those so that we understand uh, these a little bit uh, better. After he says that, in verse 1, he goes on to talk about food and drink before he moves into the therefore of our section, which is found in verse 13. So overall, it's simply this. Don't judge, don't discount, don't place hindrances, and don't cause others to stumble. Now, right at the onset, I want to make something very, very clear. When we're talking about something that is unclean, we're not talking about civil law, i.e. crime, and we're not talking about moral law, i.e. sin. What we're talking about is ceremonial law. We're talking about food, drink, clothing, practices, those kinds of things. So the Jewish person, when they would wake up from a nap even, or in the morning they would pour water over their hands ceremonially three times. Don't ask me, I have no idea why. It's kind of like Fiddler on the Roof when they're discussing why they wear the kippah, the yarmulke. Why do they wear that? And he says, I'll tell you. I don't know. Yeah, it's tradition. He'll tell you. I'll tell you why. I don't know. I don't know. It's tradition. So what you have are things that they would do that were ceremonial. And this doesn't have anything to do with sin. You've got to keep that in your mind. Okay. So rather, the discussion revolves around those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith relative to matters of 14.1. Opinion. This is a very important distinction. And Paul points out that both the weak and the strong are susceptible to certain types of spiritual pitfalls. In verse 10, he says that the weak is subject to judging other people. He also says there in verse 10 that the, the strong are subject to, I think, the ESV says uh, despising, which is a fascinating word. It's actually a, a very powerful word, and its more literal meaning means to set at naught. Essentially what that means in modern vernacular is to render the person before you as invisible. In other words, their opinion does not count. Their opinion is not worth engaging in. What they say is of no value. And that's the problem that the strong in faith have. It's really the ultimate disrespect to disregard someone's heart, the person in front of you, that they don't count. Now, a short while ago, we walked uh, essentially verse, certainly paragraph by paragraph, through the book of Galatians, and we need to revisit it for just a moment because you have the same author, you have the same subject matter, food and 
and drink, but you have wildly different conclusions. In one situation, we are here in Romans, we're to provide space for this, room for this. We're to actually give uh, to a degree in to this, whereas in the book of Galatians, we're to withstand it. In fact, Paul withstood Peter to his face. Now, we, we don't have a, a good understanding of that in our context because we don't have people that the entire church holds up. When I say the entire church, I don't mean First Colony Bible Chapel. I mean the entire church. And then those two guys go at it head to head. That was a disturbing moment. But what you have in 49 A.D., the Apostle Paul goes down to Jerusalem for what's come to be known as the Jerusalem Council. And they had a big question. Because now what was happening was the way, as it was then called, was bringing in people from the Gentiles. People who were not God-fearers and people who were not Jews. And so they had this question. How much of a Jew do they need to become in order to follow the way? And so they pondered this question and ultimately they decided that they weren't obligated to keep most of the laws, including circumcision. The council did, which of course was the big deal in Galatians, as you'll recall. The council did, however, retain a few things. One was the prohibition on eating uh, blood or meat that contained blood and meat of animals that weren't slain properly, i.e. kosher, and also on fornication and idolatry. So it was soon after that that Peter went up to Antioch and he began ministering in the church. And they were having a wonderful time of fellowship, enjoying and worshiping and eating uh, together. However, we're told in Galatians 2 Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so they're there, Jews and Gentiles in Antioch, they're having a great old time, and they get wind that James and his crew are headed, or at least James's crew, right, is heading up and about to walk in the building. And it was at that point that Peter said, Whoa, I'm sitting here eating unkosher food with Gentiles who, you know, they may not be kosher either, so I'm just going to separate. You can imagine poor Barnabas. What do I do? 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 I want to stay with the people because I know that's right, but you know what? Peter's like, you know, well, he's Peter, so I'm going to go with him. And so he did. And Paul, this really this broke. Uh, Paul's heart, and he tells us that even Barnabas would, was led astray. Now, don't let this pass too quickly from your mind, because you need to know, you need to remember what Barnabas had already done. Barnabas was the go-between the Apostle Paul and the church when the church still thought that he was out to ruin their economics, ruin, take away their homes, take away their livelihoods put them in prison, and even kill them. Barnabas was a man of integrity. Barnabas was a man who had a great deal of physical courage. But he was carried away out of his respect for Peter. That's a whole other message about 
leadership and how leaders must lead. But why would Peter stop? Why would he not eat with the, the Jews? And why did, I mean, with the non Jews? And why did he do so until James's crew uh, showed up? And it's obviously because they were eating this food that wasn't kosher. It was unclean. Now, what makes this extraordinary is you've got to go back to the book of Acts in chapter 10. And you've got to remember the story of how Peter was going to reach out to the Gentiles. Right? And so the Lord gives Peter a vision. You remember the vision. The sheet was lowered down from heaven. And in it was all manner of animals. And the voice from heaven said, Rise! Kill! Eat! And Peter said, not a chance, Lord. Not going to happen. There's unclean, unclean animals in there. Leave it alone. Not going to happen. So what happens again? Same vision. Rise, kill, eat. Peter says, no, not going to do it. And then finally, Peter, you know, he, he gets it. And he goes, oh, I know what you're trying to say. And he gets part of it. Because we'll see that uh, and a short time later there in, in chapter 10, from Cornelius, uh, the, the men ri- uh, arrived to take him to go, to go back. And Peter said this, God showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Right? So he got part of it, but he didn't get all of it. He saw it completely as a metaphor and not actually as a reality. Oh, the Lord is showing me that no matter what kind of person you are, what your background is, you're not unclean so you can come into the church. Well, the Lord was saying a lot more than that. And Peter, it took him a little while to get it here. But the point goes back once again that the overarching principles here is that our former associations, beliefs, and practices they impact our right now. Where you sit right now, your past in these things impact. We need to handle those impulses properly. You know, the way I've been taught this passage in the, in the past is that uh, there are just weak believers and there are strong believers. And the weak believers, they just poof, you know, they just like are there. So, if I read that right, that means that we've got weak believers in here and we've got strong believers, you know. And so I'm looking at that and I'm going, well, where did they come from? How does a person get the title of weak believer? And what does it mean to be a strong believer? As far as I know, we're all weak. It's our weakness that he's made strong. But regardless, we're talking about these ceremonial law types of things. So, you have this propensity of the weak believer being judgmental and the strong believer, their propensity to be contemptuous. But they don't just appear. And that's the part of the point here. Those who are weak in faith have been instructed in the way of righteousness and the law of liberty. They know, like Peter, they get it. But their heart is not there. And if they engage in something, it's self, they're self-condemned. This was true of uh, Duke and Linda. It's true, it's true everywhere. You know, you may be aware that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doesn't allow caffeine. You don't drink coffee, right? Well, 
I knew a believer, someone who had become a Christian and wonderful believer, but you know what? No coffee. Wouldn't drink coffee. To drink coffee made himself condemned. On our 10th wedding anniversary, Barbara and I went to an Arab conference. Uh, I can't remember exactly where it was, but we were at a conference for a number of days and and uh, we had a wonderful time there. But one evening, the only meat that was served, this is a Christian conference, a Christian Arab uh, conference, and the only meat that was served was pork chops. And nobody would eat them. And so there's a complaining to the, uh, the host. It was a, it was a college, uh, some college. You can't, you can't serve pork. Why can't we serve pork? You're Christians. Yeah, but where we were raised, Pork is unclean. In fact, I had a guy come up to me and said, why do you call it pork? It's pig. You call pig, pig. And we don't eat pig, right? So, you know, talk about giving it something up for Lent. Barbara and I, five years. Now, if you knew me, you say, have you seen the commercial with the dog with the bacon bits? Bacon, 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 bacon. I'm like a bacon guy. Five years. Five years, no bacon. And the reason was we wanted the people that we invited into our home to say that pork has never been served here. It's the house is because they're concerned about ceremonially clean and unclean. I didn't, you know, I didn't care. But that's, that, you know, that's, that's the way these things uh, work. So Paul tells us that the solution to this is love. Love is how we uh, get over this challenge by understanding what a weak person, a weak believer is and is not. And that is what allows love to take the appropriate action. Because you see, and here's, there's, there's a fine line here too. When a weak believer becomes judgmental, they go by another name and it's called legalist. Right? When a weak believer becomes judgmental, they become legalists. We are to give way to a weak believer, but we are not to give way to a legalist. That's where Galatians 2 came into play. It was embedded, Im- embedded in the Jewish psyche that the dietary laws were not Jewish. And they were not Christian. They were God. Right? You've got to understand that it was a God thing. Not they were God. It's a God thing. So consequently, you must obey. Full stop. End of sentence. Period. We go no further with this discussion. Because it's not my opinion about pork. It's what God says. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'll tell you what, in matters of opinion, for someone to say they know the mind of God is unwelcome and dangerous. And if somebody goes into that direction, you might as well say, hey, let's go get a cup of coffee. Because meaning discussion, meaningful discussion is, is over. Now, if you're talking about uh, cardinal doctrines of the faith, that's one thing. But remember, that's where I started. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about matters of opinion. And we don't want those individuals to become legalists and or 
to create them. And that's what happens if you allow one of uh, if you allow a weak believer to teach their weakness, you end up raising uh, legalists. I could I could go into a host of areas where this is where this is true, but the time won't won't allow that. So what happens? When a Jewish convert, so say they were a Jewish convert there in Galatians and they've abided by the dietary laws all their life, so now they become a believer and they're taught that they are free from the ceremonial law and they have experienced that freedom in Christ. And so it's like, hey, you know, your Gentile friend comes up next to you and say, you know what, you can have some of that good old shrimp that you've always wanted or maybe some main lobster with all that butter all over it yum you know that's good or yum yum best of all especially here in texas get some good old pulled pork mm. they may know that it's clean but the they can't eat it they they won't eat it why? Because it produces a literal, visceral response where they could become sick or they feel badly at best and certainly it's an unpleasant and guilt-producing thing even though they know that there's nothing to it. So what happens and what's the difference? What's the difference between a strong believer and a weak believer in that context? I'll tell you exactly what it is. The strong believer says, you know what? I celebrate the fact that you can eat that pulled pork. I might have some pulled pork for lunch. I don't know if we can get through the storm that's raging out there. And you go ahead and do that. I myself will abstain. The weak believer says this, I cannot eat that and you can't either. You see the difference. There's a difference here between these, these, two, these two things. And it's a huge difference. I recall uh, Howard Hendricks saying one day in class, and I don't remember the exact, exact date. I wish I did so that I could give you the exact quote. But he said, I repudiated legalism on such and such a date in 1950-something, but I wrestle with it to this day. It was part of how he was built. So let me, as we, as we draw towards the uh, end, allow some guidelines or offer you some guidelines for drawing this distinction. Okay? So first, the problem is personal. You've got to get that right away. It's not biblical. It's not a biblical problem. It's a personal problem. The weaker person, well, it's a biblical problem in that they don't yet feel the freedom that Christ actually gives them. And, and again, it's not the teaching of the church, nor is it the actions of other Christians, but it's the individual's own conscience that doesn't allow them to engage. It's the individual's own conscience that trips him up. As he says in 14.14, but if anyone regards something as unclean, guess what? To that person, it is unclean. So what is at stake is that person's faith, not the faith. 
Second, if a stronger, uh, if stronger believers oblige the weaker believer, understand this, it is not because they are right. It is because they are weak. Weakness moves to legalism when Paul mentions in verse 10 and verse 13 when that weaker person begins to uh, judge others. You know, it's one thing to say, I cannot eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's another altogether to say, because I cannot, you cannot. So in the Middle East, when we served there, this was a real thing. You know, especially certain feast days, there was an obligation to invite you into their home and these animals were sacrificed in the name of Muhammad. And so, I got no problems with that. It's good. It's good lamb. It's good whatever, you know. However, someone who is a Muslim convert might have a tremendous problem with that. You see? That's how this, that's how this works. And as long as it stays out of the realm of judgment, it's just fine. Another thing, you know, this is true of wine and a host of other things. Why would you serve something to someone when you knew that if they ate or if they drank that they would feel condemned? There's no, there's no love in that. You are not helping that person on their journey by showing how free in Christ you are. All it does is bring condemnation to them. So you don't put a hurdle, don't put a challenge in front of them. But it does follow that the weak believer, okay, is not allowed to impose their scruples on everyone else. This happens when weak believers get into leadership and they've got some kind of element that is, is, is weak and it, it, actually, it actually twists the church. You, know, you can, in some cases, you can end up the tail, you know, wagging the dog. But Paul urges accommodation of the weak only when their conscience is pushed to the point where it hinders their, their growth. Uh, otherwise, what, happen, what happens if you don't? Okay, the church gets ruled. The, the tyranny of the weak, right? The weakest link runs everything, and we don't want that. Let me, let me say one other thing, too. The weak brother, and, and I want to make a real distinction here. The weak brother is not the same as the weak brother who judges. Two, two classes, right? The weak brother who judges does not see him or herself as weak. They see themselves as right. It's the mature believer who has to sort that out. Third, the weaker one is, is not expected to remain weak. is expected to become uh, stronger. Thessalonians encourages our growth in faith. Colossians, our knowledge of the Lord. Ephesians, Christian maturity. You know, when Michelle, our oldest daughter, was learning to walk, we cleared a path so she wouldn't trip, right? Have you ever stepped on a Lego? Youch! All right, we cleared a path so she wouldn't trip. We'd hold out, oh, come here, come here. You know, you hold your hands and as she starts to stumble, oh, you catch them, you know. That's fine. That's fine when they're this tall. You don't want to do that. If you're doing that and they're a teenager... Something's wrong. Something's wrong. We're supposed to mature and grow. So being weak is not a, a blank check for church manipulation. Oh, catch me, catch me, I'm going to fall. No, 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 no. In love we give way 
to the one with the weaker conscience, but in other things we, we stand strong. You know, Duke never condemned me for having uh, the book. He only told me that as long as I had the book, he couldn't be there. So I got rid of the book. I was happy to keep our relationship with them. Love did that. Duke did not judge. I did not dismiss. And the unity of the body was maintained. Now the love that I've spoken of today and how it gets us through some very tricky things. If, if we were to have time to actually have a discussion on this, you would realize the host of areas that it would, would open up. But it is only through... Jesus Christ and trusting Him for your salvation and the work that He did on the cross, dying for you, for me, for your sin, for mine, that we might have life. We must trust in Him. He will forgive. He will save. And He will give us the love that we need in order to negotiate what can be a really tough life. Father, we're deeply grateful for who You are, what You've done in our behalf. Uh, we, we stand amazed that Your Son gave His life for our sin. Father, we thank You for the coming of Your Spirit the wind and the, this weather outside reminds us of the rain that You give. Lord, may, may the rain of Your blessing come to us. It may not be in forms that we understand, but may we be open to it regardless. We thank You, we praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen.